Hello everyone and welcome to M Pavilion. My name's Vanessa Bird and I'm the Victorian Chapter President of the Australian Institute of Architects. As an act of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to the people of the Kulin Nation, their elders, past, present and emerging. Uh, the Institute of Architects is 161 years old this year, um, formed just 20 years after Melbourne itself and um, older than any political party. We're a diverse bunch, but we all believe that um, design has a transformative effect and has a critical role to play in affordable housing. I'm sure most of you would have heard of the Nightingale model, the architect-led financial model, um, but here, we're here tonight to have a look at what else is happening. The um, housing affordability really needs to be scaled up. We don't need... We can't just have um, housing delivered in numbers of, of hundreds or even thousands. It's really tens of thousands. So we're looking tonight at what's research and what um, practice is in place to make that happen. Um, the... Uh, and I suppose there's no real uh, silver bullet. There's no single solution. And this was the message that the Institute delivered at a parliamentary breakfast in Parliament House recently, that architects work across a whole range of, of areas, traditionally and into the future. So um, I'd like to introduce Karen Olcock, who will moderate tonight and um, introduce the speakers. Thank you. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm not sure I've done anything moderately in my life, but I'll try. Um, as Vanessa said, I think architects can really make a contribution in this area of affordable housing, and the title of our debate is Affordable Housing Just for the Middle Class. It's intended to provoke. I think there's a lot of people who think that housing generally, um, supported housing, all sorts of housing, is just getting beyond their reach. And uh, we want to talk about some of the figures that are about that, talk about the experience of some of the people here, and then also get a developer's view who are often um, people who are working in that sector that can often um, get, get a bad rap. And actually, there's a lot of good stuff that's happening there as well. Um, we're also really lucky to have such a great group of people who've agreed to give up their Friday night here. We promised them a few beers afterwards. Um, we're going to start with Carolyn Weitzman, who is um, a Professor of Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. And I think if anybody knows anything about affordable housing, they'll have heard of Carolyn and her um, incredible pragmatism and uh, ability just to get the facts on the table. And we're really lucky to have her here. Um, she's going to be talking with Nigel Bertram, who's a practice professor at Monash University. So he's doing that work as in conjunction with uh, his practice NMBW, or as well as what he's doing at NMBW. Um, so he's going to be giving us... These guys are going to be talking about the facts and the thinking that's going on about affordable housing, and that's how we'll start. Then we're moving into um, projects. So we've got Ali Giannini from MGS. Um, Ali's got a reputation for um, the work that that MGS and, and Ali specifically has been doing in social housing and... Um, oh God, what? Yeah. yeah, social housing. Yeah, social housing and um, sort of supported housing sector. 
Um, she's Heidi Lee. We'll be talking with her. Heidi, let me just get my notes right here, uh, is Director of Common Equity Housing and uh, also Director of Earth Housing Cooperative. She is a member of Murundaka Co-Housing Community, so she's actually living in co-housing, and I think it'll be very interesting to hear of her experiences of that, and she's also an associate at Design Inc. So I think Heidi's got, going to give us an alternative view of some of the things that we commonly hear in this uh, forum. And then we're finishing off with the boys up the back there. We've got John Clements from JCB. I think... Uh, uh, apart from, you know, the amazing work that John's done for the Institute, he, with the work, uh, his practice, JCB, and he does with his co-directors, certainly sets the standard for housing in Melbourne. And for, for those of us who work in the sector, we're, we're often looking at JCB's work to seeing how to do it and how to deliver quality housing. Uh, David Waldron is our last speaker, but last but not least... Uh, David's got an incredible career who's just uh, been working at GrowCon for a long time and just moved, but I think the work that he's doing is pushing developers to go outside and give back to the community. So it'll be very interesting to hear what he has to say. So let's hand over to our first speakers. So, Carolyn. It's already turned on. Um, Thank you very much for coming this evening. I, I come from a foreign land. The foreign land is called urban planning. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I'm very happy to be here in this new land of architecture. Uh, I have been tasked with um, bringing you the hard numbers. So I apologize in advance. I'm going to be throwing a lot of numbers at you. The first number I'm going to throw at you is 1.6 million, um, million. That's the number of new units that are projected to be needed in Melbourne in order to accommodate population growth between 2017, this year, and 2050. That's 33 years. So if you divide, uh, divide 1.6 million by 33, and I should say I had to take year 10 math uh, three times in order to pass and get my high school leaving certificate. So I've checked these all in the calculator. Um, you end up with um, a little bit less than uh, 50,000 units a year. Now, if you knew nothing else about housing, you'd sort of think, okay, 50,000 new units a year, how many units are we building? But also, you would think to yourself, you'd want about half of those units, so about 25,000 units, available to people who are of average income or less. Now, the definition of housing affordability internationally is you take the median income, and then you take the median house price, and you come up with a multiplier. And a good multiplier, according to the people who do research on this, is that you shouldn't be getting a house that's more than um, three times your um, annual median income, three times multiplier. In the 1980s in Melbourne, the multiplier was about 2.5, so we know it was a pretty affordable place. Now, the multiplier is about nine. It's about 12 or 15 in central Melbourne. It's nine across metropolitan Melbourne. That's not affordable. But if you dig down a little bit more and you look at the definition of affordable housing, not of housing affordability, there's a slightly different definition. And basically, a household shouldn't be spending more than 30% of their median income on housing, which could be rent or it could be mortgage and associated costs, particularly, and it's particularly important, if you're in the lowest two quintiles of income. 
Now, this isn't quite the same, but about half of households in Melbourne earn 0 to 80% of area median income. So if we're going to provide affordable housing to that group, then we're going to be needing to provide it at a certain price point that bears no resemblance whatsoever to the price point currently for rental housing or ownership housing, of course. Now I'm going to turn to a particular group, which are very low-income people. That's households that are 0 to 35% of median income. That's about 17% of households in metropolitan Melbourne. It isn't a few people on the street or anything like that. It's 17%. These are people who may be earning minimum wage in a job. More likely, the fastest-growing group of people in housing stress, needing affordable housing, paying over 30% of their household income, are actually older women. They're your moms, because there's a lot of young people here. It might be some of you. might be your moms. Um, that's about a little less than 250,000 households. About 1% of available rentals are affordable to that group in metropolitan Melbourne. So if we were to come up with um, a sense of the number of people in housing stress, it actually... I think we keep on dumbing down the numbers, but in 2006 it was estimated as 168,000 households that were in housing stress who were paying not just more than 30%, but in many cases paying over 50% of their household income, facing a choice between paying the rent or feeding their kids, etc. In 2016, the end of 2016, Infrastructure Victoria came up with a similar figure. 160,000 affordable housing units across Victoria, about 30,000 on the waiting list for um, uh, public housing, plus another 120,000 that are receiving uh, Commonwealth rental assistance, but still, that's federal subsidy, but still aren't able to meet the um, rents affordably, plus about 10,000 mostly public housing properties that are going to be obsolescent really soon. So what are the actual affordable housing targets that we're talking about in Victoria right now? Well, Homes for Victoria, which is a policy that came out this year, talked about the um, building 20 or funding 2,200 social housing units over the next five years and another 2,500 public housing units redeveloping them. So that's about 500 units a year. It's not 25,000 units a year. It's not, um, let's see, about 16,000 units a year if you wanted to fill the backlog of 160,000 households that are in severe housing need over 10 years, plus the 25,000 units of affordable housing that you'd need to build per year in order to meet the growing population needs of metropolitan Melbourne. I'm talking about big numbers, and I'm talking about scary numbers. So what do we do with those big numbers and scary numbers? Well, a unit of housing, and of course it depends on the size and the location, about $350,000 per unit. Um, most developers would round it out that way. It could be brought down to about 250000 
if land was donated by local government or state government or federal government, they have a lot of land. Um, it could be uh, provided at cost if there was an inclusionary zoning regime, although that would involve costs for developers and it isn't just as simple as saying, uh, as is the case in, for instance, London, that 35% and eventually 50% of all housing has to be affordable to people who are median income or below. The final set of numbers I want to leave you with is that the Commonwealth government takes in 80% of tax revenue. The state government, about 17 local governments who are rate capped, about 3%. So when it comes to the responsibility for affordable housing, I think that everyone, including architects, need to look at the federal government first. I think we know and again, I'm not going to give you the numbers of um, what's going on with the um, uh, loss of various uh, federal members, but that there's going to be a federal election really soon. If the Commonwealth government ended negative gearing and capital gains tax and superannuation exemptions, Saul Eslake, who's the former chief economist of Australia, estimated that $36 billion annually are spent propping up home ownership through those mechanisms. That could build about 300,000 units annually. If Melbourne even took a quarter of that, that would be 75,000 units a year and would get us not too far off what we might need. New Zealand, the new government in New Zealand is committed to building 100,000 new affordable homes over the next 10 years. The Canadian government, I'm from Canada, has pledged $120 billion in infrastructure investment over the next 10 years with three priorities, social housing, public transport, and energy-efficient buildings. So they're big numbers, but there are other governments that are looking realistically at those big numbers and doing things, and I'm wondering how we can start thinking about the magnitude of the problem and how we're going to address it. Thank you. Right. Well, um, thanks, Carolyn. The, maybe if the, Carolyn's talking about the uh, affordable side of the equation, I might try and talk a little bit of some thoughts we've been having at Monash about what the so-called housing unit side of the equation is. And... I think um, if we're going to speak of housing, it's often spoken of as if the house, or especially the family house, is some kind of fixed entity that can't be challenged. And I think architects are very used to challenging um, through design what, or questioning what even living is, what, what a house is. And I think we, we've been asking this question, I suppose, realising that design can't solve some of these big political and economic issues. It can contribute to them, though, um, and we can start off by asking, what is a room? What type of rooms and how many might we need? What is a life? And how much of that life happens in the house and how much happens outside of the house? And these kind of quite fundamental questions. And I guess we've got to that point because a lot of our work has been looking at, at the middle, the middle suburbs of Melbourne, say between 10 and not the inner suburbs, which seem to be out of a lot of people's reach and cooking along with good transport and not the outer fringe, which is greenfield development. But 
50% of the city's territory is in the older suburbs known as the grey fields as opposed to brown fields or greenfield development, locked in a fairly dilapidated and underperforming state but really quite well serviced and good places to live. So how would you change what's going on there? There's a lot of bad housing being built at the moment, duplicating models like cookie cutter, the same suburban villa but building it in the backyard and not increasing diversity or choice or different price points, just removing vegetation and increasing heat island effect and having all sorts of negative effects, which understandably makes it very unpopular. So um, the other point would be that when we talk about affordable housing, the house itself, um, for people in, in... with different needs, people, the elderly, people with disabilities who spend a lot of time at home, live-in carers or people on low incomes, the house is proportionally more important because a lot, a lot more time is, is, is spent inside the dwelling. So the quality of that space has been linked very strongly to you know, rehabilitation and mental health and the ability to have social engagement, which is all part of this bigger life question when life is bigger than housing. So... Some of the questions, very simple ones, that we've started asking are, as I said before, what is a room? How many of them do we need? What's the right size of a dwelling? I mean, we know, and, and many of you would know, that a beautiful house for a family could be made with 80 or 90 square metres, but we build houses much bigger than that. Why? How can we move from fixed conceptions of rooms to more multiple ones? Can we build spaces that don't have a fixed purpose, that are more like shells or warehouses and, and can be subdivided without professional help. In order to do that, we need to pay attention to light and cross-ventilation and the way those spaces are serviced. Think of them quite differently. Um, how can we have less bathrooms and more flexibility? Can we have fewer but bigger bathrooms that are looser and have more stuff in them and rather than more smaller and tighter ones? Um, can we treat outdoor rooms as equal to indoor rooms in the, and garden spaces and balcony spaces and weight them equally? They're not weighted. And I say all this, it sounds obvious to architects, but the real estate market defines housing by the number of bedrooms, the number of bathrooms and the number of car spaces. And that sets a price point. Whereas I think we as architects can think about it as space and a quality of space and and. One point I'd like to suggest is that if we move from defining housing by the number of bedrooms and bathrooms it has to the number of square metres it has inside and outside and the quality of those square metres, we might get a different result. And lastly, the, we found that in our work that one of the biggest barriers to doing good things at middle densities in middle suburbs is, are the rules around cars. And cars are linked fundamentally through the planning scheme to housing, but they it's not a logical connection. We could decouple that relationship and, and give, not remove cars altogether, but just remove them from their strong link to the house or the causal link and give people more choice and price those choices so you could have no car and not pay for the car or the space that it takes up or you could have a car parked in the street or you'd have a car parked on a piece of gravel ground that you share with other people at the end of the street or you could have an undercover space or a locked-up space. And all of those choices could then be priced in the market. And, and we've 
found through lots of studies of typical blocks that this unlocks the possibility quite dramatically of what's able to be done in terms of small, efficient, dense but not over-dense uh, spaces within the current suburban fabric. And just as a little example, the, the largest room in typical um, contemporary mat-like suburban development is the garage. It's a double garage, about six by six metres. It's a perfect space for a courtyard with a deep root tree. It's a perfect amount of space for a one to two storey dwelling to get light and air. And if every one of those garages in the suburb became a courtyard instead and a big tree was planted in them, what a different kind of suburb we'd live in. Thank you. Hello, I'm Ellie Giannini. Um, thanks, Nigel. That was sobering, <laughs> to say the least. And um, Caroline's figures are also a very, um, you know, uh, sobering thoughts. What, what, what I do and what we do at MGS is, is really um, probably a dropping the ocean. Um, uh, but hopefully a... Uh, dropping the ocean that sets a good example. Um, we've worked for many years with housing associations uh, and housing associations, for those of you who may not be familiar with, with, the, with what they do, they basically grew out of um, political activism and out of um, uh, tenancy management mostly. Um, so they're an alternative to the sort of social housing that's provided by the Office of Housing or what used to be once called the Housing Commission. And uh, the one uh, client we've, we've had quite, you know, for, for a number of years and work consistently with is um, Port Phillip Housing Association who was basically um, uh, grew out of the um, uh, gentrification, this sort of movement um, to counter gentrification that was happening in the St Kilda area uh, because St Kilda was a um, very... Um, uh, was populated um, and had a large number of dwellings uh, that were being rented and then as people with uh, larger incomes came into the place, those the people that uh, had traditionally rented there were being... Uh, displaced. The idea of social of this kind of housing and and what PPHA do is um, they try and uh, keep people in the area that they uh, grew up in or have family in or have connections in have, where the services are, so that uh, in in their in in their tenants life. Um, they're connecting the tenant to the community. You know, they keep the tenant connected to their community. Now, as I said, you know, um, we do, as architects, you know, we don't do a lot of housing as any, anyway, you know, in general terms. Um, we probably do, um, you know, as I said, a drop in, it's a drop in the ocean. The, the first project that I'm going to talk about it, is um, Woodstock. Um, Woodstock um, was seen as a very innovative project because basically uh, Port Phillip City Council decided that they had a whole lot of um, sort of underutilised land in 
car parking around the municipality. And they had a very proactive council, as I said, you know, uh, councillors who um, had uh, been voted by the citizens of Port Phillip because of their activism, social activism. And um, so they were very supportive uh, and uh, established uh, a uh, connection with the with with the housing association in order to provide and more social housing in the area. So Woodstock, um, uh, which some of you might might know through you know website of the REIA, won a, um, a, a Victorian chapter two Victorian chapter awards. It's basically a, a rooming house, um, and when I say rooming house, it's a sort of a more contemporary version of of a rooming house than what you might have in your mind, um, and it's it's comparable, I suppose, to a motel style um, uh, building where there are thirty five, um, thirty five, thirty six rooms. Uh, the rooms are around 35 square metres because they're uh, a motel-style room with uh, a bedroom which which also doubles up as a living room. They have their own little kitchenette and bathrooms. And within this development, uh, there's also communal spaces that people can, uh, where people can either receive visitors or can uh, uh, do something communally like cook or um, watch TV or meet for various purposes. Now, what's innovative about that? Um, well, really, the innovation was in the way that um, the, it, it's a factor. It, you know, it's 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 a multi multi-pronged factors, I suppose. The, the council, as I said, had a, has a, housing pol- had a housing policy, which, you know, you'd be surprised um, why men- that I'm mentioning this, but a lot of councils don't have a housing policy or at least didn't have it at the time. The elected councillors, um, people like Darren, La- uh, Darren Ray and Janet Bolitho, Championed housing, so they they were elected on on a platform of providing, you know, um, good housing for the citizens of Port Phillip, the, the ones that couldn't afford the the market housing. Um, the council established partnership with a with with the organisations that could deliver the housing, which was you know PPHA at the time, and they also had government funding. One, you know, and these are sort of five essential essential um, ingredients, I suppose. And if, if you don't have one of them, the whole thing falls over. So um, I'm just, you know, so innovation in, in, the ha- in the housing sense is just made up of just simply putting those five factors together. The other thing I was going to go talk about is, is the, the idea that, um, you know, we need to have imagination. Architects always add that to the mix, um, in the 1980s, um, John Devonish came from from um, Sydney to Melbourne, and he was an architect who established a new way of um, for archi- for younger architects to um, be involved in in the delivery of social housing, um, uh, mainly within the Office of Housing, which at the time had changed its um, policy from building tall uh, tower blocks to refurbishing uh, heritage properties and um, 
and um, constructing smaller terraces and mixing things so that um, there wasn't such a, you know, huge estates with kind of like a, a ghetto of uh, disadvantage. Um, lastly, because, you know, uh, um, Vanessa did ask me what to, to, to mention what architects bring to, to the whole thing, is um, I've, I want to mention intellect. We, as architects, have got the expertise. Putting all the parts of a project together is not... Um, it's, it, it's, it's different from calling a whole bunch of architects and sitting them around the table. Um, the specific expertise that are, that, that are the parts of the profession, you know, the engineers, the building surveyors, the quantity surveyors bring, are all very important to the, to the project. But in the end, it's the architect that has to have the overarching vision and understand all, how all those parts, uh, you know, fit together. So that's a plug for us as architects. <laughs> so in, a, in conclusion, um, before I hand over to Heidi, it's the three I's, innovation, imagination and intellect. <laughs> Thank you, Ellie, and to Carolyn and Nigel for setting the scene in such a, a completely horrifying way. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask questions of the audience because architects are always so fascinated with how people use space. And I want you to put your hand up if you have a spare room in your house. It might not be spare. Maybe it's not a spare room. It's your office or it's your guest bedroom or it's that uh, room in the corner with all of your ironing and a few extra things. 80% of us of Australians have at least one spare room in their house and about 60% of us have two or more. And that comes down to a Canadian measure of uh, housing utilisation that um, gets cast over Australia who hasn't made up their own. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about co-housing today as one of the solutions, one of the ways that we can use some of this otherwise surplus space. It comes to how do we use the space, how creative can we be, and co-housing is a way that we can use our spare surplus space to build better communities. So co-housing is a Scandinavian-inspired way of living where you get a collection of people, usually 20 to 50 households, and they come together with some slightly smaller than usual homes and we take all of that, that spare room space, that surplus space, we put it into common areas under community management and we don't turn it into spare rooms. It doesn't have your old treadmill in it more. It's got uh, function rooms, commercial kitchen, workshops, guest rooms. Whatever the group of people who got together to make the community want, you put in your common house and you share it together. So it does come down to some of those questions that Nigel was raising about how creative can you be about what you really need in your own private space? How private does that need to be? And what are you willing to share with your neighbours if you got to know them well enough that you could trust them? So I often get asked to speak about co-housing in the affordable uh, housing context because uh, I think there's a bit of a myth that David was happy to thumbs up. It's a myth that it's cheaper to build because... Co-housing might be apartments, it might be townhouses, it might be duplexes. It costs what it costs. You can't get those prices down to build it. But the reason you would do it is because it is a much more affordable way to live. And when we're talking about affordable housing, to what ends, right? We want better communities, we want more affordable communities, and we want better ways to live. 
why you would want co-housing in your local community is because you've got a collection of people who are motivated to be good neighbours. And that often extends past their immediate community and into the broader neighbourhood. So where I live at Murindaka, we have a huge uh, common house. It's about 300 square metres. We have about 20 units or 20 households sharing that from one bedroom to four bedroom units. And the types of things we do as a community, um, we decide ourselves. So we decided we're going to eat meals together once a week. We're going to bulk buy some food and some consumables. We're going to, we share own some cars between neighbours. We share own some bikes. Uh, We've got a whole lot of community resources that we use for ourselves. And then once you do that and you get used to the idea of sharing, you find that it's not so much of a stretch to share with the other people down the road as well. So we also run a whole bunch of workshops uh, and open up a whole lot of uh, the shared equipment and shared spaces that we have to be used by people who might just live down the street and uh, make friends with us. But yeah, you've got to be our friend. That's kind of the catch. So co-housing might be Scandinavian-inspired, but it's been quite prolific in America and the UK in like the last couple of decades. And in Australia, there are dozens of communities forming. Even in Melbourne, you'll find in the next couple of years, there's going to be uh, two, hopefully, on the ground next year, and there's going to be many, many more coming through the ranks. One of the things that I'm most excited about recently is actually an urban design framework. So shout out to the planners. I can see a couple of friendly planning faces. Um, Banyul City Council have just released a draft urban design framework, which is the first time that I've ever seen a full-page definition of what co-housing is in non-negotiable, clear terms, so that developers can now weigh up whether or not they want to engage with a group of people who want to live together in a community. Academia is looking at it as well, and I'll leave you with some numbers, which is 30%. And that's the amount of seniors who were surveyed by the University of Technology, Sydney, who said they were interested in living in co-housing. You look at how many baby boomers are coming through and what that might mean for our population. Thanks very much. John's decided he wants to go last, which means the developer goes second last. Um, I want to begin, of course, by joining Vanessa uh, in acknowledging the uh, Wurundjeri people uh, and um, their elders past and present. We meet on their land. Uh, We meet on the land of the language group of the Woiwurrung. And I would suggest we might pause occasionally and look back at millennia of occupation of this land and say to ourselves, what might we learn if only we thought about that in a bit more depth. And in the context of this conversation, what might we learn if we thought about families as clans, if we thought about the extended family and the models that might come with housing in that sort of context? Uh, I find that intriguing in the context of share accommodation. I find it intriguing in the conversation about home. Uh, So we've been asked to talk about affordable housing Uh, My fundamental problem with the discussion about affordable housing is it talks about housing, uh, and for those of us in the industry or with an interest in it, uh, you're talking about bricks and mortar or weatherboard and planks or whatever the modern technology is that will print it tomorrow. When you drill into what my colleagues have already talked about, the importance of a house providing a location that enables you to live in whatever form that you took from their discussion, you're talking about home, not house. And... 
when you get into the conversation about home, you get into a conversation over time and there's a critical issue that comes with that. Um, at the risk of being um, shouted down, uh, I will suggest that the fundamental problem with the question of affordable housing is the great Australianism, I'm all right, Jack. Affordable housing is something that absolutely must be solved <clears throat> by somebody else, using somebody else's money, and absolutely definitely in somebody else's suburb. And until we can break through the uh, political and planning nexus that comes with that problem, there is no solution. Right? We can talk about this from now until forever. We can talk about the numbers that we've been given. There's no solution. So I'll pop that up on the shelf as a start point. Then I want to talk to you a little bit about punctuation. So my colleague on the other side of this um, set of steps, Karen, sent a note out and said, uh, it'd be great if you'd speak from the developer's perspective. And the title of your area is No Excuses. And John will speak to the same topic. What I looked for was the punctuation. Where was the exclamation after no? And where was the question mark after excuses? Because if I'm presenting from the developer's perspective and I'm speaking for all developers, then quite clearly the answer is no. And the last bit of it was what excuses do you want to roll out this time? So I'm happy to take questions on that later and debate it. I'm, I've actually not been asked really to talk about that, but rather to talk about some experiences, some models that might be useful. But I will ask you to come on a journey with me on one conversation around one project. Uh, my background is architecture. Uh, I've worked in development for uh, Grocon for a long time, uh, where four core values are in play there on each and every project. And I had the great joy of being responsible for the realisation of some of those values with Daniel. Uh, many years ago, we developed a project... We, 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 Yes, we developed a project for Yarra Community Housing for the state government uh, and uh, with an organisation called Homeground, now called uh, Launch. And uh, one of the people involved in that is in the audience. So, Stephen, thank you for what I'm about to say. And what we learnt in that exercise was the fundamental difference between house and home from the perspective of the people who provide the support for those who need support in that accommodation and absolutely changed the way we thought about how we could intervene in the residential marketplace. Uh, subsequently, we chose to develop a set of guidelines... <coughs> That's not right. Subsequently, we um, chose to become involved in a group of, uh, in the property industry who developed a set of guidelines called Livable Housing Australia. Now, if you don't know them, a set of guidelines you really should know, and what a great topic. Who doesn't want a livable house? Uh, but it was effectively housing that said... Uh, or guidelines that said, if we just made tiny little changes to that which we deliver, the accommodation we provide would be available for a much broader, broader spectrum of the community, both at the time and over time, uh, and those guidelines were published to um, some positive and some negative positioning. The reason I explain that to you is... Roll the tape forward, and we were doing a project. Uh, we were coming up to a development opportunity in Fairfield, and we had made the decision that all of the residential projects with which we were involved would adopt a livable housing. Full stop. There were no qualifications. There was no ambiguity about that. It was very, very clear. Two projects were happening at the same time: one in Sydney, one in Fairfield. 
I went up to visit the Sydney team and they uh, were about to begin their marketing campaign to sell apartments. Let's remember, housing today is at least 50% apartments and it doesn't matter which way you look at it, it's going to increase. And they presented this beautiful body of work and I said, how did you go about the livable housing guidelines because it doesn't really look to me like you've adopted them. Oh, was the response. You know, we thought that was a bit of a non-core promise, so we haven't. Why architects is, is part of the question. Why are these people here? Uh, God bless them. The architects on that project said, oh, we're really very interested in livable housing. Give us the weekend. And on the Monday, they came back with a set of plans for this apartment complex and they presented them on the screen. I defy anybody at a marketing pitch position to, to see the difference. But what critically happened was that marketing agents said, you know what, they're much better. I can sell those much more easily. I can lift the value that you can sell that product for. And the person who had said, no, we don't have a... That's a non-core promise, suddenly decided that he was a hero. Um, fast forward the tape now down to Melbourne and we develop a project uh, with um, JCB where, round numbers, 80 apartments are all designed and developed as accommodation uh, to suit the needs of people with special needs because they're all livable housing. Right? It's not a big shift. It cost us not $1.00. Not one dollar. It just required effort and quality and design. But what then happened was through the NDIS, which you probably all know about, the biggest social reform since Medicare, money became available to not-for-profits to engage in the marketplace to find accommodation for particularly, in this case, young people in nursing homes with um, particularly high physical needs. That organisation came in the door and bought ten apartments. They could only do it because we'd taken the step of saying we'll have liveable housing. We'd opened up our residential market by 14% by making the accommodation available for people with special needs. That's a good story. Here's the no excuses bit. We finalised the deal with the not-for-profit agency up to the point of signing. We presented the position back to the team that were delivering that project and you could almost have heard the real estate agent from here. No, with an exclamation mark, and out came the excuses. Fundamentally, the position was not one of finance, was not one of design, it was one of who wants to live next to those people? Now, as horrific as that is, it's important that we tell that story because when we get into the broader context of um, different forms of intervening at the sorts of numbers that Carolyn's talking about, we need the whole marketplace to come with us. And we need to acknowledge as a community that the I'm all right, Jack, solve it in someone else's suburb is not an acceptable position unless we want to say no more growth in Melbourne and I want to be monocultural. If, if that's the position, then that's fine, but it would be nice to have the political debate. If instead we want to be the pluralist society that we are that accommodates people with special needs, that accommodates people that are doing it tough, that takes the step up, we all need to step up and step into that place. Developers will do it when there's an opportunity to do it, that's a small tip of the iceberg. Developers will do it when they have to do it. That's the rest of the iceberg. And that comes from guidelines, that comes from regulation and that comes from political will. But in putting that position to you, I say, it's effectively saying there's a wealth transfer required here from all of you to all of them, if we take the conversation that they're not in this space and I 
would acknowledge that that's not right. But fundamentally, we need to be saying, actually, whatever the intervention is here, it's going to be a wealth transfer mechanism. Government will not solve this on its own. It, in fact, fundamentally cannot and never could. This is about a much broader political position about how do we fund the society that we want to live in. I'll finish there. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, David. Um, yes, so under no excuses, John's uh, been given the simple topic of no excuses for, for poor design, which sounds a bit rough, and Karen's given me a, uh, probably a, an overly generous introduction, but um, in the context of talking with David, um, the, you know, in my practice, at JCB's practice, we're constantly faced um, with the challenge of working for developers um, and actually uh, constantly challenged by trying to produce um, good buildings with a range of people working against us. Um, and probably most critically, a lack of, a, of real understanding of the value of design and the impact that design has on buildings. So I thought maybe just in the context of affordable housing that we should consider the, the economics of affordable housing and maybe shift the conversation. This is real, really a lead-in to the discussion that's about to follow um, but shift the conversation a little bit away from is affordable housing mean cheaper houses, so is it cheaper land, is it cheaper buildings, and actually start to think about what um, impact the concept of cheaper houses or cheaper buildings has. Um, so I just thought I, thought I might just read a small piece out. Um, and this, come, this is some, some research that's been done out of the UK. There's a couple of things that I might read here, actually, that are fairly interesting and in, in, in some cases quite relevant to Australia and in other cases not so. So a study for the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors carried out in 1997 estimated that more money, as much as £2 billion per year, and this is in 1997, so do the, do the numbers, is spent on treating illnesses arising from poor housing conditions than is spent by local authorities on their own housing stock. National annual estimates of the increased costs associated with the 7.6% of public sector homes considered unfit for a habitation are £3 billion due to poor health, £1.8 billion due to increased crime and £120 million for the cost of fire services. Another comment was that extensive international research by the University of California in the 70s and 80s using post-occupancy surveys discovered that not only did the overall impression of the exterior of a house and its surrounding dwellings have an impact on how people felt about their homes, but also in many cases about those residents' personal sense of worth. And that kind of comes back to that conversation that Nigel brought up before about the idea of putting a tree in everyone's garage. Because I've, uh, I've got a property at, at Little River. It's a rural property, and we've got a small house out there. And um, I'm, I'm progressively watching the expansion of the western side of Melbourne and this kind of this sort of obsession with people who have want to put the biggest house on the smallest possible block, and that's the way. Um, so I just, I just, I wanted to sort of move some thinking across to um, the impact that we have as architects in terms of design, and to just step back to the appreciation of the level of. Um, education that goes into teaching architects the skills that they develop and the many years of work that are put into um, developing, developing an understanding of design and the way in which design can improve the quality of our housing. 
and maybe maybe stop and think about the impact um, of buildings uh, and whether they be apartment buildings or houses um, without architects involved. And if you allow the developers who purely like to um, deliver buildings at the cheapest possible price and uh, some of those developers, and I'm not talking about you, David, <laughs> uh, some of those developers might see uh, the architect's fees as one way to increase their profits by getting rid of the architect's fees as well. Perhaps think about um, issues such as health, wellbeing, life cycle costs, maintenance, energy use, density, less cars, the recycling of buildings and even just water management. All of those aspects are serious complexities that we have in buildings uh, and I think Arguably, some of our worst housing stock is where none of those things are considered. We'll chat soon. Okay. Well, we're running out of time, and um, given that, we're going to have a slight change of format. Um, But I think... What's come out of this from my perspective and from David's comment, um, this idea that it's somebody else's problem and I think what we're trying to do with today's presentation is actually say, well, it's not somebody else's problem, it's our problem. It's, you know, the people sitting up here, it's everybody here. I mean, when you think about the figures that Carolyn has put on the table, we are way behind the, the eight ball as far as being able to deliver housing for anybody I mean, it it doesn't even really come down to affordable housing. It just comes down to housing generally. Um, So what I wanted to put to each of our uh, speakers today is what's the the one thing that they think should happen that could really make a difference here? And then we might open up to a couple of questions. So, Carolyn, do you... I think that the Architecture Institute, I guess you're all... How many of you are members of the AIA? Yeah, so (laughs) I'm not going to say join the Institute because I don't know what the politics of that are, but um, it would be helpful if the AIA worked with the Planning Institute, worked with local governments, um, worked with whoever will come on board, community housing providers, um, extraordinary developers who are part of the solution, like David, um, to demand a national housing program as part of the next federal election. Um, I think everyone here is in a relative position of power and the first thing we can do is change our own lives and really think hard about the way we can share more the way we can uh, live differently and the way we can convince our partners and collaborators and clients to do less, you know, do more with less and be innovative. So that's our role as advocates. Um, We've got a... We we can lead by example. Um, What he said, because that was mine too. (laughs) I'm not sure that you can... You should get away with that. (laughs) Is that allowed, Karen? (laughs) Okay. Um, When I started architecture, 
many decades ago. <laughs> um, architects were seen as, well, they were politically active. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of th things that architects used to complain about, you know, the destruction of uh, heritage and, uh, like I said before, um, you know, the, um, uh, they got together with, uh, with other people who had social conscience to advocate for, uh, for themselves and others who, you know, really couldn't afford to, to live in very expensive uh, palatial surroundings uh, or, or, uh, or and, but wanted to stay in the suburbs that they loved. So I think one thing we can do is um, become politically active and support others who are um, and, uh, you know, instead of the profession going towards being seen, you know, we were seen as heroes. Now we're seen as sort of being in the pockets of, uh, you know, developers and being kind of part of the kind of um, the, the, the evil empire. Um, just have a think about ways that we can all um, join uh, or ring our local member or write letters and um, make a difference in that way. Um, as the developer, let me just say, architecture is not a cost, it's a value. The process of architecture is a value, not a cost. And those enlightened developers in the room and in other places would absolutely acknowledge that every day of the week. But also acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. In fact, you've probably only got your own answer. Therefore, the key move is I would ask for acceptance. That is, accept that you cannot solve the problem. Accept also that you can be part of the solution, not the solution, by saying, you know what? Regulation is okay if it's going to get us back to the sort of inclusive society we enjoyed some time ago. And we will accept that regulation. And if we could communicate that to the political leaders in this country and say to them, whichever colour you like, green, red or blue, we're there for that particular provision because we actually value other members of our community, then we're all in a pretty good place. There is the only answer. Um, I've, I've, I've got three small suggestions. First, celebrate small, small footprint living. Um, and then secondly, I think bringing architects into the research space in terms of affordable housing, often architects are talked to too late in these processes. Um, and architects are creative thinkers, so they don't, they don't think in straight lines. They think about different ways, different opportunities to explore outcomes. And I think that they should be involved early in the process of research. Um, and regulation, obviously, comes back to the concept of uh, do we use architects on all projects? I, I, I mean, it's easy for me to say. Obviously, I would argue for mandating the use of architects on all projects. That's an easy thing to do in the government space and it's a hard thing to do in the private space and I would absolutely love to see architects mandated, particularly in the private space where there are many cowboys. Okay, we've got five minutes. I don't know if anyone would like to ask some questions of the guys up here. Yep. 
thank you for a very inspirational talk. Uh, my question is probably less about the built form, but about perhaps the, fina the financing techniques that could be applied for um, affordable housing. Um, when I look to the UK, I see examples of shared equity housing or rent-to-buy schemes which haven't made their way to Australia, or if they have made their way to Australia, they are um, run by shysters uh, for, or, or, or not done particularly well. Um, I was just interested in the panel's thinking on on those concepts and whether they have a place in, in this debate around affordable housing. Uh, yes, they absolutely do have a big role to play. And I think when we look at the Homes for Victorians uh, announcement, where it has an enormous failing in the scope and the, the breadth of it, it does contain some really exciting innovations around how we draw together uh, finance for these things, including the shared equity models. And I think we're going to see... I'm looking to someone for a queue now or very soon. Some of those are already um, available to people. So that's a direct application of some of these things. And I think Carolyn can... So if you come away with one thought tonight, it's that there's no magic bullet and there's no simple answer. Definitely um, shared equity is part of the solution. Another thing that hasn't been used successfully in Australia yet but has tremendous um, potential weight are community land trusts. Um, uh, there, there are literally 101 different things that can help bring about more affordable housing but I guess the one thing that's the most important is the political will to do something about it. Uh, hello, I was wondering if somebody could speak to the tiny house movement. The tiny house movement. Um, well, I'm not sure if that's the answer, but... And I'm not sure that small houses per se are, are an answer to affordability because it's, um, as I tried to say before, that a lot of people who are in need of housing, the house is their only refuge. It's, it's more important than ever. In fact, a wealthy person can live quite well in a very small apartment in a great city um, and live a metropolitan, cosmopolitan lifestyle, but a person under housing stress is probably less able to do that. So... It's not really answering the question, but I think it's, it's that scale and use of space is absolutely critical, as I was trying... I mean, we build houses that are way too big, full of empty rooms. It's just kind of nuts. Um, but, you know, the work of um, someone like Lakaton and Vassal who look at the... You know, they say we should build the biggest space possible for the people most in need and make it the most flexible and kind of joyous that it can be. So I think that it does come down to quality, not just quantity. I think as well to say, to add to the tiny house movement for people who don't know about it, very, very small, uh, say 25 to 30 square metres at most. Um, often in the US where we've seen tiny house um, proliferate, tiny house communities they're called, and they often have community spaces on top of that. So it's not just about having one extremely small space that you don't have any access to anything else from. You actually have a whole range of these communal spaces and you build a community around it. So they are a way to, to, find, to provide homes for people who want them. So if you want to live in a tiny house, there should be an option in a market for you, whether you are rich or poor or in between. 
anything on that, sorry, um, that I think that apartments, you know, as, as David mentioned, apartments are often seen as secondary or in terms of even uh, that the markets want or, or they're, a, they're not an option for the suburbs in Australia, they're an option for, you know, docklands and so forth, but treating family living in apartments seriously is, is definitely one side of this equation because they're much more efficient, you can share things a lot more. They're kind of a version of a small house, but we don't think of them as a small house, we think of them as apartments. And I think, you know, the whole shift of um, that, that it's possible to raise children in an apartment environment very well and you don't need all these things that we think we need in a house is, is part of the space equation. I'm going to finish with one observation because I love your question. I'm fascinated by the tiny house movement, absolutely. But in the context of architecture, let me come this way. If I were a developer and I decided I wanted to build an apartment building with 25 square metre apartments in it and do 100 of those somewhere in Melbourne or the suburbs, the current guidelines would say, no, you're under area, you've got to have a certain minimum area, bugger off, because you can't do it. You can't live like that. Actually, what the tiny house movement proves and is fundamentally important in this conversation is if you design it really, really well, a very small space can provide fabulous accommodation. And there's a lesson there about these guidelines providing a minimum standard but not shutting down the ability to innovate and value the quality of design. Okay, we need to finish up uh, there, but thank you, everybody, for your putting in your time and uh, making your observations. I think just as a wrap-up, um, the take-home message, I think, is advocacy is super important. We look at the city of Port Phillip. Some councillors came in. They said, we want to make a difference. Well, there was two of them, whatever, you know. They made a difference. Okay, they might have only delivered, I don't know, 30, 40 houses. But, you know, uh, right... Thousands, there you go. But because someone got out of bed and said it's not good enough, they actually made a difference, right? And there is no silver bullet. But if each of us helps somehow to push back, to live better housing, to say to a developer or a client, no, we can do this better, um, I think we could end up with better housing in the future. We may not solve the problem, but we could steer the ship slightly in a better direction. So I think that's something to take home. So thanks, everybody.